Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Hello and welcome to you all. This is Canada's most irreverent talk show, The Andrew Lawton Show, here on True North on this Wednesday, December 14th, 2022, 11 days until Christmas. I know I am infuriating you with the Christmas countdown. I feel like I'm going to be accused of a hate crime, not because I am supporting the Christian holiday more than any other faith's holiday, but just because everyone is so stressed out that the reminder of how quickly approaching Christmas is will likely be uh, the kind to induce vast levels of hatred in society. But I take no responsibility for that. This is a free speech zone, a safe space for all opinions, and I thank you so very much for tuning in. So... This is one of those moments where, before I get into the thick of it, I have to do a little bit of a victory lap here, because I feel like this is one of those programs where I can say that the Andrew Lawton Show got action. Yesterday, I had an idea, which wasn't really prompted by anything specific, except for some of the general news that had been emerging with uh, the muskification of Twitter, and I was talking about how I think Elon Musk really needs to take a stand against the liberal government in Canada and its efforts to regulate the internet, and specifically to force social media companies to pay mainstream media outlets, to force social media companies to remove content that uh, fits the liberal government's definition of so-called hate speech. And I did a, a very impassioned show about this spoke about it in a number of different contexts, and then I had also tweeted at Elon Musk, kind of calling on him, trying to bring attention to this. Anyway, I don't really think anything of it. A lot of people respond to the tweet, and I don't know if Elon's going to see it or not. I think a, an hour went by, and I figured out, okay, I guess he's busy doing other things like running his many companies. And then I wake up this morning, and I think I got up a little bit later than I usually did, maybe six o'clock or so. And my phone is just like lighting up every few seconds. And I'm like, what on earth is happening? And I, I look over at it and realize that this tweet to Elon Musk has blown up. And then I realized the reason it's blown up is because Elon Musk has replied to my tweet to him, calling on him to uh, act in this sense about what Canada is doing. So my tweet, just to uh, give you a little bit of a ref refresher, was this. Canada's liberal government wants to regulate internet content and deputize social media companies to enforce hate speech bans with a low and murky threshold for what hate speech is. I hope Elon Musk takes a stand against this. And then Elon replies, sounds like an attempt to muzzle the voice of the people of Canada. And that is quite an astute observation. I think more astute than most of the members of the legacy media in Canada have been able to come up with about what's happening. And I wanted to expand a little bit on the themes we started talking about yesterday and explain why there is a, an all-out war on internet freedom taking place right now that is not just about C11. And I just, if you subscribe to my Substack newsletter, I just a few minutes before going on air had published my latest edition, which is on this topic. And I say that C11 is the tip of the censorship iceberg. And the reason I bring that up is because there's been a very sustained backlash to C11. And I think justifiably so. It's a terrible bill that does a lot of bad stuff to the internet by manipulating algorithms to force more Canadian content to appear. So you want to go and see the latest clip from, I don't know, Joe Rogan or My Little Pony, or perhaps both. Maybe it's uh, My Little Rogan. You never know. 
And instead, you get the uh, highlight clip from Little Mosque on the Prairie because you haven't hit your Canadian content quota for the day, and Justin Trudeau says you need to see more of it. Now, the amusing part of it is that technically the Andrew Lawton show is Canadian. Not technically. I mean, in, in, technically, logistically, de facto, de jure, this is Canadian content. But I don't think this is the type of Canadian content that the government wants to serve up on your algorithm. Or one of my absolute favorite shows of all time is is Money Heist on Netflix, a Spanish show that I only have access to because Netflix decided there might have been a global audience for it. But maybe I log in and I don't actually get Netflix to recommend Money Heist to me because instead there's some, oh, I don't know, Quebec drama that has to be served up as a measure to comply with Bill C-11. So all of this is an example of why the, and again, you can take issue with big tech company algorithms, and I would encourage you to do it. But the only thing worse than tech companies manipulating these algorithms is government manipulating these algorithms. Like, has Justin Trudeau ever done anything to suggest that he should be the one to tell you what you see on YouTube or Netflix, what you listen to on Spotify. You go on and you're like, oh, wow, I hear Rihanna has a hot new album. And it's, oh my goodness, this is just every Celine Dion track ever made. Now, nothing against Celine Dion. I quite like Celine Dion, but I don't want Celine Dion like forced into my ears like the oral equivalent of the clockwork orange scene where the guy said that the eyes are uh, being pried open. Instead, the ears are pried open and it's just all Celine Dion all the time because C11 says more Canadian content on the internet not realizing that the internet is where we go to escape the regulations that affect TV and radio in several ways so all of this is to say that the C11 is a big deal but it's so much more than that and this is what I was getting at in that tweet to Elon Musk, which he replied to and said it was an attempt to muzzle the voice of the people of Canada, which I, I wholeheartedly agree with because the Liberals put Bill C-36 forward in the previous parliament. And this is a bill that would reinstate Section 13 of the Canadian Human, uh, Human Rights Act, which allows for the prosecution effectively by the Canadian Human Rights Commission of so-called hate speech. And it isn't hate speech that meets the threshold for criminal hate speech. It's hate speech that instead meets a threshold that has been set out by the government that is lower than the criminal threshold. That is speech that maybe falls within the bounds of political debate or speech that is contentious, controversial, maybe icky, but certainly not speech that is or should be illegal. And one of the big problems, and I'm going to be talking about this a little bit later on in the program, is the conflation by those predisposed to online censorship, by people like Justin Trudeau and Stephen Gilbo, with social accept of social acceptability of speech, with legality of speech. And I think that is a big challenge that comes up here. There is lots of speech that is objectionable, perhaps offensive, controversial, but that doesn't mean it's illegal. And freedom of expression, freedom of speech, I, I use those terms interchangeably. Now, if you talk to some Canadian legal scholars, there are a lot more distinctions than uh, you may agree with and certainly than I agree with. But nevertheless, they're all part of this same debate. And I, I think when we talk about the regulation of the internet, we can't look at C-11 in isolation. But I, I do want to focus in a little bit 
bit more on it because a lot of people uh, have certainly heard about it and they understand some of the issues with it. But I don't know if people realize what the stakes of this are. And I think part of this is because the government has couched C-11 in very benign sounding terms. Like, oh, it's just Canadian content. Oh, it's just modernizing. It's doing all these things. There's something wrong. We're, we're We're not against modernization, are we? Well, that's not exactly what's happening here. Uh, Joining me on the line now from Open Media is the campaign's director, Matt Hatfield. Matt, good to talk to you. Thanks for coming on today. Hi there. Thanks for having me. So let's start. Why is this an issue for your organization, first off, C11? So I think C11 was drawn so broadly um, that it did pose a real expression risk to ordinary Canadians. Um, so there's been a lot of debate since it was first introduced to C10 last year about uh, our ordinary audiovisual posts, you know, the videos and podcasts and such that we as users put on on the internet, are they being treated as broadcasting content? And could the CRTC be regulating our individual expression? And in the version of C11 passed through the House, I think that was still a very real consideration, a very real concern. Um, we're, we're lucky that there's been an amendment during the Senate process that could fix that, uh, but we'll, we'll have to see if the House ends up accepting that. Now, what was that amendment uh, specifically? Yeah, so th- this comes from Senator Simons and Miville Deschen, and uh, together they essentially narrowed the scope of the bill. So previously, um, under C-10, it, it just very clearly included uh, all user expression, and people were very alarmed about that, understandably. Uh, now, in C-11, they tried to exclude some user speech, but they did it on such broad terms that they were saying like, well, if you're earning any revenue, if anyone is earning revenue alongside this content, then we're going to treat it as broadcasting and the CRTC can regulate it. Well, as you know... So if just on a whim, you flip on monetization on YouTube and make like five bucks a month, you're now a commercial publisher like, you know, Global News is or some giant YouTube streamer. Exactly. And so the House didn't fix that. That was still uh, a huge risk there. This amendment uh, restricts the being treated as broadcasting to professional sound recording um, and uh, just does a much tighter job of making sure most of our posts should no longer be subject to the bill if this amendment is accepted. Now, I know Open Media has a a petition calling on the government to fix this, so I I just want to kind of drill down here. Is this just your view that this is inevitable and we have to try to make the best of it, or, or do you actually think that at its core it's trying to achieve a good thing but going about it the wrong way? Well, I think a part of what it's trying to achieve isn't a bad thing. We, we don't think fundamentally treating the internet like broadcasting doesn't make sense. Like the internet is not broadcasting. All of us are making a million choices a day that we never got to make in, in the TV broadcasting world. Um, and so some of the things the government has proposed here uh, don't respect our choices, don't respect our individual right to you know, opt into things and opt out of other things. And that's a huge concern. Um, the idea of finding some financial support for Canadian creators, we're not necessarily against that. Uh, but unfortunately, there's the question of, is it going to be fair? Is it going to be open to all Canadian creators? Or is it, again, going to be a situation where, where some people are picked as favorites and others aren't? And the CanCon system hasn't been updated since the 1980s. It won't be updated yet under this bill. We're still going to see who's included and who isn't. And that's a huge question. Well, that's another thing that I I think you raised that's quite important here. I mean, the content, the types of content, the genres of content that are on the internet are a lot more varied than music, where you have, you know, sure, different genres of music, but, you know, within the parameters of what a country station is playing, there's Canadian artists and non-Canadian artists for the purposes of of Canadian content. On the internet, we're talking about political content, and I I mentioned sort of jokingly earlier on that, you know, my show is Canadian 
content, but I don't think it's the type that, you know, the Canadian government might want to promote. But there's a serious point in that, which is that not all content is equal just because of its country of origin. Yeah, that's right. I mean, of of course, you and I are both Canadians, but probably neither of our content would be counted as CanCon under the current system. It's got quite an arcane points-based system where there's all kinds of different benchmarks you need to hit to be qualified. And some things that are very clearly Canadian stories don't end up qualified, whereas some things that uh, really ought not to, you know, things like a documentary about the, the British tutors, that will qualify as CanCon. So uh, something that I said in testimony, I don't think that C11 is necessarily intended to be a censorship bill, but it's so broad it could very easily be used as one. That's why we've been calling to tie it down, restrict it, make it very clear what it's actually about, because there's a real risk that a future government in a year or two or three years could pick this up and say, well, now that we have these powers, like, let's see what we can do with it. And we don't want to see that. Well, one of the issues, too, and I don't know if this has been resolved in the Senate process, but is that so much of how this would actually unfold and how this would manifest really comes down to regulations which aren't in the bill, which would be developed after the fact by the CRTC. That's right. And so one of the things I'd like to encourage listeners is to stay engaged with this process. You know, people pay a lot of attention to bills. They don't pay nearly as much attention to what the CRTC does in in CRTC proceedings. But those matter a lot. So we're going to be there throughout in interpreting any part of this bill. We're going to be fighting to have the, the choices and content of ordinary people respected in that process. And I really hope that lots of people who've been alarmed by C-11 will, will also participate in that because um, it will determine the reality of a lot of this. Now, ha- has the government, uh, to your knowledge, given any indication of whether it's willing to accept that Senate amendment? They said that they're studying it. Um, so we don't know which way they'll go. Uh, I, I should actually flag as well, there was a really negative Senate amendment as well. Um, they added an age verification requirement for internet platforms that I think was a, a huge error to introduce at this late stage, and we're hoping the government will remove that as well as accepting this new one. Yeah, so since you bring this up, I, this is a, an interesting one, because I, I understood that what they were trying to do was uh, try to help as far as like accessing online pornography was concerned. Like That was the, the thrust behind it, wasn't it? Yeah, it's about, in their view, it's about protecting kids. And of course, who wants to be against protecting kids? Um, but the Senate didn't hear from a single witness about this idea, about what the consequences could be, about how it would work. And I mean, right, rightfully so, I think um, some representatives of the government said during the consideration of the amendment, this really doesn't belong here and we should consider this separately if we're going to do it. It needs a full consideration because like the worst version of this is uh, that you need a government issued ID and you need to provide it to Reddit or to Twitter to log on and to post your content. And again, it might not be intended for political content, but it could sure affect political content if they do it in a, in a detrimental way. Yeah, and then you uh, you throw privacy issues into the mix. You throw uh, equity issues into the mix. Not everyone has that has the the means to to, to publish it or to to upload that. I, one other dimension of this that I, I think is important is that you are right that this can't be done in an omnibus way where just everything that's remotely connected to the internet gets thrown into one thing. I, I mean, my issue with uh, another uh, proposed set of reforms on, on online harms is that you know that you have people that are wanting to view terrorist content the same way as as hate speech, which I don't actually think can be done in the same way because there are so many very definitions of, of hate speech. And, and I think there is this tendency, you're right, to just try to, well, they've opened this box, just put everything they can into it. That's exactly right. So uh, we haven't had harmful content legislation yet. We had a, a paper that sort of outlined what they were thinking last year. And it was a giant mess. It was uh, amongst the worst ideas we've seen from any democratic government actually around these issues. 
Um, they were very, very heavily critiqued. They have pulled back from that initial proposal, but we don't yet have a sign of what their follow-up legislation will be on that. And as you said, like terrorism content or content that's uh, abusive of children is, is actually quite a different matter than hate speech, which is very subjective, very contextual. There's no way we can apply the same legal considerations to the, the two situations. Um, and, and you so just interrupt hoping... there. There were also some members of the panel that wanted to add unrealistic body image into the category as well, like further complicating things. Sure. Misinformation comes up a lot, right? Yeah. And we all hate misinformation and we all disagree about who's, who's putting it out. So um, there's a lot of things that we might not like on the Internet that can't be well treated by the same law. So I don't want to kind of speak, put words in your mouth here. I mean, I've gotten the sense that you've probably had, or your organization have probably had criticisms against conservatives in the past, but, but this has also kind of become somewhat of a left-right issue, it seems like. I don't think it should be. No, I, mean, I would agree. I, we're, we're a nonpartisan organization. We're here for people's fundamental rights. Um, I, I do think you're right that in the last, say, five to seven years, for various reasons, people on the right side of the spectrum have felt more motivated to speak up for fundamental liberties. But at the end of the day, like it's, uh, it all depends upon which end of the stick you're on, right? And one of the points that we try to make when we're talking to the government or to even the NDP is that a lot of very marginalized groups can be very, very harmed by these um, very aggressive uh, regulatory approaches where it, it all sounds good on paper, but in reality, when you're uh, an RCMP uh, officer administrating some of this, uh, you might victimize, you know, some of your traditional targets, folks like indigenous groups or, or other marginalized communities. Yeah, I think you always have to, and, and I would hope people do, but I, I find often they don't, is look at how would my political opponents use this? And if you'd be uncomfortable with giving the power to them, you shouldn't give your give the power to your uh, to your political allies. Well, uh Glad. Uh, hopefully we can see some progress on this, although I, I think we're past the point where minor tweaks are going to be the, the thing that fixes this here. Uh, where can people sign your petition? Uh, over at openmedia.org. We've got a new petition calling on the government to uh, support the, uh, the user content defending amendment and strike down the age verification one. It's going to get a third vote at the Senate soon, and then it will go back to the House. So we are hopeful that both of those changes can be made. And although it's still going to be a, a pretty imperfect bill, it'll at least be less of a mess than it started as. And, and I think your, your point earlier about following it even beyond that uh, as the regulations are developed is an important one. Uh, that is openmedia.org campaigns director, Matt Hatfield. Thanks very much for your time, Matt. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Yeah, this shouldn't be a left-right issue. And I, I think that's actually a, a good evergreen position to take on uh, most things, which is if you're talking about giving the government a power or an authority in some way, you have to say, how would I feel if someone who hated my very existence had that power? I mean, we've talked about the Emergencies Act a lot on this show. Uh, you have to look at the longer-term implications of this. How would I feel if this were used against someone like me? You have to look at censorship provisions through this sense. How would I like it if someone had this power and could use it against me? And I think we're long past the point of being able to say, just trust us which is what the government says about a lot of its internet regulations. And Stephen Gilbo has probably been the worst messenger imaginable 
on C11 because every time he speaks, he gives what is basically a different definition of what C11 actually does and who it affects and who it targets and user-generated content. He's saying, no, it's not going after what you post online. And then, okay, well, maybe it's going after. And now if you make any money of it, you're an online publisher and it's, but it doesn't matter how much. So all of a sudden you could have a, a multi-million dollar online publishing operation like, oh, I don't know, Netflix being treated the same way as some guy who just tries to make a hundred bucks a year uh, just by running some ads on his silly YouTube videos. And what, what the government is claiming is happening here is that they're just trying to promote Canadian content. They're just trying to give the guy from uh, Toronto a little bit of a leg up over the guy from Bucharest or so. I don't not to pick on YouTube streamers from Bucharest. I don't know if there are any particularly good YouTube streamers from Bucharest I need to be following, but uh, now to be honest, I, I'll never know about them. If C11 passes, I'll never find out who the hottest guy, not the, not the hottest guy. I mean like the trendiest guy in in Bucharest, but uh, uh, take from that what you will. And all of this is going to be harmful to Canadians because it takes away Canadians' ability to navigate this stuff for themselves. And I go back to the stuff I started off the show talking about when we look at the broader package of reforms here. It's not just C11. It's also, to some extent, I mean, it may not be the biggest deal, but C6, C18, which is the bill that forces uh, Twitter and Facebook and Google to pay the Toronto Star and the Globe and Mail, and perhaps Global News, to pay them. Why? Because Global News, the Toronto Star, and the Globe and Mail post their content voluntarily on Facebook and upload it to YouTube and tweet about it. Like, this is the most absurd thing ever. So what the government is doing is trying to orchestrate yet another bailout of legacy media. But instead of actually using taxpayer money, they're just looking to big tech companies and extorting them, basically, extorting big tech companies to pay for a bailout so that the liberals get to claim credit for uh, saving journalism without having to do the heavy lifting because they don't have enough money to, I guess, indefinitely keep these things afloat. But then it's the speech regulations. And I've said numerous times that free speech is the hill to die on, because if you don't have free speech, you can't actually debate anything of consequence in society and deal with any of the other big challenges facing society. If you look at the COVID era, one of the biggest challenges to being able to push back against the government's COVID restrictions were actually attacks on free speech. You couldn't debate vaccines. You couldn't debate vaccine mandates without being accused of violating medical misinformation. And just imagine if all of these YouTube bans and Twitter bans and Facebook bans that were in place on so-called misinformation were actually state bans, were actually coming from government. Because that's what the government wants to do. Now, as Matt said, they have not proposed this in legislation but they've talked about wanting to put forward takedown notices so that if a YouTube or a Twitter or a Facebook or any of these companies has content that violates the government's determination of what harmful content is, they have to zap it within 24 hours or be fined up to like it's some ridiculous amount, like $25 million. That's what they're going to have to deal with. So What's happened here is the government has tried to and may well succeed in what I said in my tweet to Elon Musk is deputizing social media companies, deputizing tech companies to do the government's dirty work. 
And this is not something that we should just brush off and think, oh, well, it doesn't affect me. No, it affects everyone. It affects everyone. And I'm so sick and tired whenever you talk about free speech and the importance of free speech and the issues with governments arbitrarily redefining what hate speech is. You get people that say the same tired criticism, which is, oh, well, I don't need to worry about being censored by hate speech laws. What are you saying? And people that start conflating, as I said earlier, social acceptability with legality. People that have no issue saying, because I don't like this form of speech, I don't really care if it gets censored. And I'm so long past caring about that. You know, it's very difficult to defend free speech in the abstract because you're going to be confronted with individual examples and people are going to say, well, do you support that? Do you support that? And I I made a decision long ago that I wouldn't care about the substance of this speech to care about whether it should be free or not. One example of this, and I may have told this story before, years ago on my old radio show, I was talking about uh, the Holocaust. Well, actually, no, I was talking about campus free speech. And I said that universities are places where academic debate, even of contentious ideas, should be allowed. And I said universities should welcome that. They should relish that. And I gave just an obviously extreme example of Holocaust denial. And I said, Holocaust denial is something that you should be legally allowed to debate. I know the Holocaust happened. I know six million Jews were killed. I know it is one of the most heinous displays, the most heinous display of anti-Semitism that we've ever seen in the world. The answer to Holocaust denial is not censorship. The answer to Holocaust denial is exposing the truth, exposing the truth, confronting Holocaust deniers with the truth. But I said, I do not support censorship. So I believe that legally people should be allowed to debate the Holocaust. And there was this hackish left-wing outlet called Press Progress that ran a story, Andrew Lawton thinks the Holocaust is debatable, which is a gross misrepresentation because of the how people read that word debatable of, of what I was actually saying. But this is the era we live in. This is the culture we live in. You cannot defend someone's right to say something without censors accusing you of defending or agreeing with the thing itself. And this is actually something that is so despicable, so despicable, and it's an inevitable byproduct, in my view, of a culture in which we feel the need to cancel those we disagree with instead of just disagreeing with people we disagree with. Like, why do we all need to agree? Why does it need to be my position or censorship? Why can we not just accept that there are some people that say things that I want nothing to do with, but they get to occupy their little corner of the world and I get to live in the mainstream of of civil discourse. And a lot of these issues would be so much easier to manage if people just had a fundamental human appreciation for free speech, a fundamental human respect for free speech. Forget about law. It's not that the law doesn't matter. It's not that constitutional rights don't matter. It's that that human desire to be free and to have freedom and to respect freedom in others is more fundamental than whatever the law says or whatever Justin Trudeau says. And I don't have an answer to this because right now we have a government that clearly wants censorship, that clearly supports online censorship, that clearly supports the ability for their government and for future governments to draw this line 
and say that content on that side of the line is not allowed and must be removed from the internet and content on this side of the line is fine. And you can't look at what the government has proposed without understanding that when the liberals and others that are predisposed to online censorship use terms like hate speech, what they're actually talking about is not what most Canadians think of when they hear hate speech, which is, you know, really vile, violent rhetoric. What, what they mean is content that they hate, speech that they hate. I, I mean, just remember, I know the clip has gotten a lot of play, but Justin Trudeau has oftentimes, uh, well, not, let, let me take a step back here. He denied ever calling the unvaccinated names. When everyone saw that same clip, we've played it on the show from the election campaign, where in French, he said that the people protesting him were unvaccinated, they were misogynist, they were racist, they were extremists. If Justin Trudeau views being unvaccinated as being extremist, and racist, and misogynistic. If he believes that is extremist, what on earth would he support censoring when it comes time to determining what hate speech is in the context of the Canadian Human Rights Act? And, and the government can write whatever guidelines it wants to in law, and they've, they've tried to do this. They've said, well, it's, it's speech that is likely to foment detestation and vilification and to try to neutralize from the free speech concerns that I and others raise. They say, it's not just about offensive speech. It's not just about humiliating speech. And there are a few other examples there. It, it's, it's just this really extreme stuff. But somehow they've still had to come up with a new definition that has a lower threshold than the hate speech definition that exists in the criminal code. And why would they do that if not because they plan to shrink the bounds of what is legally possible to debate, what is legally possible to say? And I don't know if you can look at this at all and come away with the conclusion that there is not a war underway by the government against online free speech. And yes, oppose C-11, talk about C-11, talk about how you reject this idea that we need to mandate Canadian content, absolutely have that discussion. But you have to look at the whole suite of things that the government is trying to do right now about the internet. And they're trying to dramatically expand regulation of the, the internet beyond... I mean, Michael Geist, who's one of the most uh, foremost thinkers on this issue and scholars on this issue, has said, this is the most anti-internet government in the world. And I'd be hard-pressed to come up with an example, certainly among liberal Western democracies. We've got to end things there. We will be back next week with more of Canada's most irreverent talk show. But uh, back on Friday with Fake News Friday alongside Sue Ann Levy, I believe, is on deck this week. So you won't want to miss that. We will talk to you soon, folks. Thank you, God bless, and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.